भागवते वासुदेवाय ओम नमो भगवते वासुदेवाय ओम नमो भगवते वासुदेवाय ओम ज्ञान I pray that Shri Shri Radha Kalachanji, Srila Prabhupada, and Srila Gurudev use me as an instrument so that their message can flow through me to give me the words to serve the Vaishnavas listening. So today is Tuesday, October 12th, 2021, and we are reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 1, Creation, Chapter 10, Departure of Lord Krishna for Dwarka, Text 13. Sarvate nimishai rakshais. Samanu druta chetasa. Dikshanta sneha sambada. Diselus tatra tatraha. Sarvete nimishai rakshais. Sam anu druta chetasa. Vikshantaha sneha sambadha. Vichelas tatra tatraha. Sarvate nimishai rakshais. Samanu drutta chetasa. Diksantaha sneha sambadha. Vishelas tatraha. Sarve. All. Te. They. Animisai, without twinkling of the eyes, 
akshai by the eye tam anu after him ruta chetasaha melted heart vikshanta looking upon him neha sambada bound by pure affection vichalu began to move tatra tatra here and there ha huh? so they did translation and purport by his divine grace ac bhaktivrantha swami shila prabhupada all their hearts were melting for him on the pot of attraction they looked at him without blinking their eyes and they moved hither and thither in perplexity purport krishna is naturally attractive for all living beings because he's the chief eternal amongst all eternals he alone is the maintainer of many eternals this is stated in the katha upanishad and thus one can obtain permanent peace and prosperity by revival of one's eternal relationship with him now forgotten under the spell of maya the illusory energy of the lord once this relation is slightly revived the conditioned soul at once becomes freed from the illusion of material energy and becomes mad after the association of the lord this association is made possible not only by personal contact with the lord but also by association with his name fame form and quality Shrimad Bhagavatam trains the conditioned soul to this stage of perfection by submissive hearing from the pure devotee. So we are discussing when Krishna leaves Dwarka and currently he's in the process of leaving and the Pandavas are feeling sad upon his departure and that's what they're describing when they say all their hearts he's it's referring to the Pandavas. And the pandavas are feeling this way because krishna is god he's the supreme personality of godhead and they're anticipating the separation that they'll feel from him and you can only feel this kind of separation if the other person is a person a um form you know person with form tangible person it's hard to feel separation from someone who's just an effulgence or a light so here we once again can see an example of krishna as the personality of godhead is a person is personhood and as such we have a personal and unique relationship to him the pandavas have their relationship to him and we have our own unique relationship to him and this is the second well maybe more than second but this is the second time another time i should say that in the first canto we're seeing about this personal relationship with krishna the person the form that appears in front of us the first the other time that i'm thinking of is when narada muni is talking about his um interaction with krishna he saw krishna for a moment and then krishna left his sight and that was enough for him to dedicate his entire life to krishna So this idea that God is a personal god is very important it's the underlying concept of everything that we do in Krishna consciousness it's also a very con- inter- 
important concept in all theology. <clears throat> There's a quote or the description of a personal God in the Encyclopedia of Philosophy, and it says that theism signifies belief in one God, theos, who is personal, worthy of adoration, separate from the world, but continuously active in it. This description perfectly describes Krishna. So we can see how Krishna is a personal God. And there's many, many examples in Bhagavad Gita and the Srimad Bhagavatam. So I'm just going to um, discuss a couple of them. In Bhagavad Gita 9.13, Krishna says, Those who are not deluded, the great souls, are under the protection of the divine nature. They are fully engaged in devotional service because they know me as the supreme personality of Godhead, original and inexhaustible. So Krishna is saying here that when people come to their true knowledge, when someone becomes fully realized, they understand Krishna to be a person, the supreme personality, the person of all persons, right? He's the end-all, be-all of all persons. Because he's the original and he's inexhaustible. And in 10.12 to 10.13, Arjuna confirms this. He says, you are the supreme personality of Godhead, the ultimate abode, the purest, the absolute truth. You are the eternal, transcendental, original person, the unborn, the greatest. All the great sages such as Narada, Asita, Devala and Vyasa confirmed this truth about you, and now you yourself are declaring it to me. So Arjuna says, yes, I understand what you're instructing to me, and you are the original person, um, transcendental, eternal. And then he confirms it by saying all the great sages also say this. So it's not just Krishna saying this about himself. And it's not just Arjuna confirming it, but he gets further confirmation from all of the great sages. And as such, when Krishna's a person, and there's someone that we can have a relationship with. We can't really have a relationship with the Brahman effulgence, the impersonal form of Krishna. It's still Krishna. It's still part of him. Prabhupada gives the example of the sun, sunlight and the sun planet itself, right? The heat emanating from it. So the Brahman fulgence is like the sunlight that pervades through everything. And then we have, you know, the um, the actual planet itself, the sun planet, which is more like the Supreme Personality of Godhead, God, Bhagavan. And because Krishna is a person and we have a personal relationship with him, we also have personal relationships with other devotees of Krishna. And it makes it very sweet when we interact with other devotees of Krishna and then we interact with Krishna and we interact all together. My guru says it's a big compact ball of love. Right? It's love emanating everywhere here. And we can feel this when we do service for each other. We do service for Krishna. And, you know, I am very partial to doing service for the deities, especially intimate service like bathing and dressing the deities. You get to know, you get to understand that Krishna is a person when you engage in that kind of service. And there's a couple of ways I've heard that we can 
engage in that service when we're addressing the deity, right? There's this idea of, you know, we say our prayers, we ask for purification, and then we dress Krishna and we think of the Maha Mantra, let me serve you. And sometimes that's hard for me to do it that way. So I tend to be a little bit more personal when I'm dressing. You know, after the purification prayers, I I talk to them. If I'm dressing Radha Govinda, I talk to them about, you know, do you like this dress? Is it, do you want it this way? This is how my day's been going. How's your day been going? You know, it's just trying to create this intimate relationship with them because they are God. And a lot of times when I have a dilemma in my heart and it's, you know, pervading all of my thoughts, like, oh, how am I going to overcome this? And I'm dressing the deities. I'm trying not to let it pervade my thoughts, but it still does, right? Our thoughts are our thoughts there. And sure enough, you know, they'll answer the question in several different ways. And I'm also a big proponent of this type of synchronicity, right? I have this thought in my heart or question or dilemma or something that I'm just mulling over, you know, thinking about. And then Krishna confirms it in two or three different ways. Because apparently once is not enough for me to hear the message. So Krishna gives it to me in a few different ways. And part of that is my personal interaction with Krishna. It's our personal relationship. Because I, when I start asking those questions with an open heart, sure enough, he'll answer. And it'll come in the form of reading something that'll answer the question, hearing something, someone may say something. They may be engaged in the process of Krishna consciousness, or they may not be. And still, I can hear that message coming to me. So synchronicity plays a big you know, part in my life and in my relationship to Krishna and in my progress of devotional service. So it's very important that we keep ourselves open to this relationship that we have with Krishna. And of course, we know that part of our relationship with Krishna is adoration of him. We adore him, we worship him. He's praiseworthy. And Srimad Bhagavatam, and the Krishna book especially, the 10th canto, is filled with stories of Krishna and his pastimes and his you know, feats and all the things that we can use to um, engage with Krishna with adoration. And he does things that are praiseworthy. Next week... I think in a week from tomorrow, we start the auspicious month of the Damadar month, and we'll sing the prayers of Damadarashtakam every evening. And those prayers are a great example of all of the sweet pastimes of Krishna and how we adore him. So when we engage in those prayers, we can think of how we're worshiping Krishna, how we're adoring him, how those childhood pastimes are forever enacted in our hearts and in our minds and engage with them, remember them at all times. In addition to that, Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita gives several examples of how he's praiseworthy. He's the source of all creation. And in, in Bhagavad Gita 7, 8 through 11 are the I am statements, right? I am the taste of water. I am the light of the sun and the moon. I am the syllable Om in the Vedic mantras. I am the sound in ether. I am the ability in humans. I am the original fragrance of the earth. 
I am the heat and fire. I am the life of all that lives. I am penance of all ascetics, the original seed of all existences, the intelligence of the intelligent, the prowess of all powerful people, the strength of the strong, devoid of passion and desire. And he says, I am sex life, which is not contrary to religious principles. So he gives examples after examples of how he is the cause of all causes, how he's, you know, so this makes him very praiseworthy. He also, in Bhagavad Gita 9, 16 to 9, 19, he says, I'm the ritual, the sacrifice, the offering to the ancestors, the healing herb, the transcendental chant, the father of this universe, the mother, the support, the grandsire, the object of knowledge, the purifier, the syllable om, the rig, sama, and yajur vedas, the goal, the sustainer, the master, the witness, the abode, the refuge, the most dear friend, the creation, the annihilation, the basis of everything, the resting place, the eternal seed. He gives heat. He withholds and sends forth rain. He is immortality. He's also death personified. And both spirit and matter are in him. So again, so many examples of how he is the cause of all causes. You know, he is, he's giving us all the major things, and he's saying, this is what I am. This is who I am. And then in Bhagavad Gita 10, 20 to 39, he describes how he's the best in all categories. And I'm just going to say a few because there's so many. You know, he says that um, he's the super soul seated in the hearts of all living entities. He's the beginning, the middle, the end of all beings. Among subduers, he is time. Among beasts, he is the lion. He's inexhaustible time, all-devouring death. Among women, I am fame, fortune, fine speech, memory, intelligence, steadfastness, and patience. Of months, he is Marga Sirasha, which is November through December. So we're coming upon the best months according to what Krishna is, who Krishna is. Of seasons, I'm flower-bearing spring. He is victory, he is adventure, he is the strength of the strong. Of the wise, he is wisdom. Of secret things, he is silence. Um, And then he concludes with no being, moving or unmoving, can exist without him. And then he says, in Bhagavad Gita 10.40 and 10.41, there is no end to my divine manifestations. What I've spoken to you is but a mere indication of my infinite opulences. Know that all opulent, beautiful, and glorious glorious creations spring from but a spark of my splendor. So if we think of all the awesome, wonderful, beautiful things of of the material world, it's just a spark of his splendor. To drop, drop in the bucket of how beautiful and amazing and awesome Krishna is. So we can take this to understand that he is praiseworthy. He's worthy of our adoration. He's worthy of our worship. And then on top of that, we have, you know, we have to kind of keep this praise and adoration or praise and awe and reverence of Krishna kind of to the side so that we can have a personal relationship with him. Sometimes 
I um, see or I can think about how we can come to worship the deities and it's like, oh my God, you know, am I doing this right? I'm, I'm so concerned and like you, you, we can approach them in this awe and reverence. And I think of, you know, <clears throat> these times when, um, when I was younger, I used to do a lot of dance um, competitions and, you know, getting dressed up, Indian folk dance, so Garba and Bandiras. And my mom would help me, you know, get ready. And if she came at me with like this, oh my God, is this right? It would really put me in this kind of anxiety, you know, before a competition or before a performance. I mean, instead it's more like personal, right? She's talking to me. She's, we're having a conversation back and forth. Um, and it's the same way with Krishna. Like, if we come at him with this energy of anxiety, it's not going to feel good to him either. So we want to come with him, you know, understand that, keep this balance of, like, yes, we have this personal relationship with Krishna, but then to also not overstep our bounds and keep that respect with him. And we can practice that, really, with when we dress the deities, but, again, with each other and how we interact with each other, because we can have respect with each other and still have a familiar, loving relationship. And that's kind of the goal, right? We don't we don't necessarily want to have so many people that we're in awe and reverence with, and, oh my God, I can't talk to that person. Because every person wants to be talked to. Every person wants to have a personal relationship with other people. That We want to be connected. So, and finally... The definition about a personal God is they're separate from this world and continuously active in it. And again, there's so many quotes in the Bhagavad Gita, so many verses in the Bhagavad Gita that exemplify this. So I'll just mention a few. There's Bhagavad Gita 7.12. Krishna says, Know that all states of being, be they of goodness, passion, or ignorance, are manifested by my energy. I am, in one sense, everything, but I am independent. I am not under the modes of material nature, for they, on the contrary, are within me. So it shows that he's active in this world, but he's also separate from it. In 9.4, Bhagavad Gita, he says, By me, in my unmanifested form, this entire universe is pervaded. All beings are in me, but I am not in them. And then he continues in Bhagavad Gita 9.5, And yet, everything that is created does not rest in me. Behold my mystic opulence. Although I am the maintainer of all living entities, and although I am everywhere, I am not a part of this cosmic manifestation, for myself is the very source of creation. So we can see how Krishna gives examples of how he is part of this world, he's created this world, but he's also separate from it. And it's hard for us to understand this concept because it's really abstract. It's very esoteric. Like, because all we can see is people that are in this world and they're very much a part of this world and they're not separate from it. And even when we see someone like Srila Prabhupada who is in, you know, in this world, but he's very much detached from this world, but he's doing, you know, he's, um, active in it, but he's also separate from it, it's still hard for us to see that example because we don't experience it that way. And a lot of times when what we don't experience, we have a hard time understanding. 
So we have to really study this and, and um, think about this concept of how Krishna is a part, he's created this world and he's continuously active in it, but he's not really in this world. And then there's more verses that I thought were important. In Bhagavad Gita 9, 8, 9, 9, and 9, 10, Krishna says, The whole cosmic order is under me. Under my will, it is automatically manifested again and again, and under my will, it is annihilated at the end. All this work cannot bind me. I am ever detached from all these material activities, seated as though neutral. This material nature, which is one of my energies, is working under my direction producing all moving and non-moving beings. Under its rule, this manifestation is created and annihilated again and again. So further examples that Krishna is maintaining this world, but he's also not doing any work. And he's um, detached from it. He's neutral. And then we can also see there's many examples of him saying that he's friend to everyone, but those that are devoted to him are very dear to him. So we can see this kind of apparent contradictions, but they're not really because Krishna is God and he's not really contradictory. It all fits, right? And so because these are really hard concepts for us to understand, Prabhupada concludes in this purport, the last sentence that he says is, Srimad Bhagavatam trains the conditioned soul to this stage of perfection by submissive hearing from the pure devotee. So, again, this idea of studying and reading the Srimad Bhagavatam is very important. But now he's saying, we want to make sure that we're doing it under the guide of a pure devotee. And this is a very important concept in the purport of Bhagavad Gita 1.1, right? The first verse, the first chapter, the second sentence, Prabhupada says, one should read Bhagavad Gita very scrutinizingly with the help of a person who is a devotee of Sri Krishna and try to understand it without personally motivated interpretation. And we can take this to refer to all of scriptures, you know, not just Bhagavad Gita, the Srimad Bhagavatam, the Chaitanya Charitamrita. And we are very fortunate that we have Srila Prabhupada's translations of the Srimad Bhagavatam. Bhagavatam, the Bhagavad Gita, and his purports, because his purports are a guide, you know, and they're the guide under a pure devotee. So just reading that enough can be enough to be a guide to us, but I find the purports to be very complicated. So we need a guide for the purports as well. Mm-hmm. And that's when our living spiritual master or um, advanced devotees can really help us interpret some of these things, understand some of these things. And we can see it um, to be to helping us understand it, especially if there is no personal motivations. You know, there's a lot of texts under Srila Prabhupada's purports, <clears throat> a lot of purports that can be very confusing. They can be very um, off-putting for certain groups of people. And under the guise of a bona fide spiritual master or an advanced devotee who is studying these texts, we can really understand better what 
Srila Prabhupada is referring to or how it really applies to all of us and is not meant to be divisive. Um, it's not meant to single out any groups of people um, because it's more meant to show that there are differences and we are not this body. Right? So we want to make sure that we're learning and reading the Srimad Bhagavatam, Bhagavad Gita, under the guise of a pure devotee. Bhagavad Gita 4.34, Krishna says, just try to learn the truth by approaching a spiritual master. Inquire from them submissively and render service unto them. The self-realized souls can impart knowledge unto you because they have seen the truth. So this word submissive comes up again. Right? Inquire from them submissively. And this really is questioning with the idea of learning, questioning with curiosity. Because we can also question in a accusatory way. We can question in a way that we're trying to show that, oh, we understand better than you. Um, So there's a couple of different ways that we can question, and we want to make sure we're questioning submissively, right, with an open heart. Um, So I go back to when I'm asking Krishna, you know, to help me solve some dilemmas or some questions that I may have. It really comes to respond, like, asking these questions with an open heart. Oftentimes we ask a question because we're looking for a certain answer. And if we don't get that answer, we become very much in distress. I find that a lot sometimes in my personal engagements and my personal conversations. Sometimes I find myself asking someone a question, but I want a certain answer. And when they don't answer a certain way, like, okay, I'll ask someone permission to oh, you know, can I borrow this? And I'm expecting them to say yes. But then if they say, no, I, I'm not, you know, I, I need this right now, then I may get very upset because I wasn't really asking for the possibility of a no answer or an answer different than what I was expecting. But if I ask more in the idea of this, they could say yes, they could say no, they could say something totally different, and whatever they're going to respond, I'm open to it. Then it becomes a very different interaction, and it, the interaction remains loving, and there is no distress from that interaction. So we want to make sure that we are inquiring submissively when we're reading the Srimad Bhagavatam and the purports, and the Bhagavad Gita and the purports. Um, and when we're asking questions about something that may cause us some questions or concerns, then we, again, we want to make sure that we're asking these questions submissively. I've read that the Srimad Bhagavatam is considered the ripened fruit of all knowledge of the Vedas, and there are many benefits of reading the Srimad Bhagavatam. In Srimad Bhagavatam 1 to 18, it's stated, by regular attendance and classes on the Bhagavatam, and by rendering ser- of service to the pure devotee, All that is troublesome to the heart is almost completely destroyed, and loving service unto the personality of Godhead, who is praised with transcendental songs, is established as an irrevocable fact. So this sums up everything we've been talking about, right? Regular attendance, listening and hearing the Srimad Bhagavatam, studying it, it cures us of the troubles that we have, And then it allows us to give loving service unto the personality of Godhead. Remember, God is a person, praiseworthy, 
And this is established as an irrevocable fact. And then in conclusion of the entire Srimad Bhagavatam, in Canto 12, chapter 13, text 11 and 12, it says, from beginning to end, the Srimad Bhagavatam is full of narrations that encourage renunciation of material life, as well as nectarian accounts of Lord Hari's transcendental pastimes, which give ecstasy to the saintly devotees and demigods. This Bhagavatam is the essence of all Vedanta philosophy because, it is subject, because its subject matter is the absolute truth, which, while non-different from the spirit soul, is the ultimate reality, one without a second. The goal of this literature is exclusive devotional service unto the supreme truth. So it's very important that we read because the more we read, we, the more we understand that Krishna is personal, is a personal God, and he and we have a personal relationship and unique relationship with him. And the more we understand this concept of how he can be separate from the world and continuously active in it, and then we get to see all the reasons why he is praiseworthy and worthy of our adoration and love and affection. So we want to set aside time to read you know, japa is very important. Mantra meditation that we spend our time engaging in our personal relationship with Krishna is very important. But we have to read so that the understanding comes of why we're chanting our Mahaman, the Mahamantra, chanting japa. Srila Prabhupada said, faith without philosophy is fanaticism, while philosophy without faith is mental speculation. So we be, need both faith and philosophy. And in order to gain both, we have to set aside time to read. You know, whether it's, and I say this over and over again, whether it's setting a timer or reading 15 minutes every day, whether you set aside, I'm going to read a chapter a day, right, become part of the Chad Club, um, or you decide you're going to read one verse a day, two verses a day. We made mention of this previously, and, you know, I said that if we read two verses a day of the Bhagavad Gita, we finish it within a year. If we read one verse a day of the Srimad Bhagavatam, it may take us 18, 19 years to finish it, but we'll finish it, right? If we don't start, then we wouldn't have finished it. I I started seriously taking part in Krishna consciousness in um, 1995. That's when I started chanting 16 rounds dedicated myself to my spiritual master. I had started reading one verse a day in 1995. I would have already been done and reading it my second time through. So even though it may not seem like progress, one verse a day or two verses a day, it can be great progress. Several years ago, I just set aside 15 minutes of reading a Srimad Bhagavatam. I mean, I actually started with different books. I finished you know, the Krishna book um, 15 minutes a day. I think I finished that in less than like six months or something like that. And then um, I remember from previously when I was younger, I tried reading the Srimad Bhagavatam. It was very complicated for me. So I had this like experience of the Srimad Bhagavatam being complicated, and I didn't want to deter my reading you know, progress that I was making. So I decided to skip over to the Chaitanya Charitamrita. 
And I started reading 15 minutes a day. And I finished the entire Chaitanya Charitamrita in four years. So, you know, it's been several years. I think I started reading the Srimad Bhagavatam. I think it was like 2017, you know, and now I'm in, and there are some days that I forget or I skip or I, you know, something happens. On the most part, I try to read every day and um, I read on my iPad or my iPhone and it's in the app that's part of the Apple series. So it's iBooks or now it's called Books. And they keep track of how long you read. So I set a goal of 15 minutes every day. And my longest streak of not missing a day was like 100 days. And then I missed a couple of days. And you know, So with that, I'm currently in the middle of, I think, Canto 6. Um, and so, you know, yeah, I'm making progress, right? 2017, and it's now 2021, so four years and six cantos in. But if I hadn't started... I wouldn't be anywhere, you know. And maybe in another four years, you know, I'll be finished. So it would have taken me eight years. But that's still, you know, plenty of time, like, right? So I have enough time to go back through and read again. So it's like we want to not get caught up in, like, that it's going to take forever if we read one verse a day. It's that we're making small progress every single day. And some days, you know, if you commit to one verse a day, some days you maybe move to read a little bit more. And that's okay because some other days you may not find the time to read, you know, despite setting aside the time. So it's very important that at least we make this plan to read a little bit every single day because a little bit can go a very long way. So I'll end here and ask if there are any questions or comments. Yes. Um, I purchased all of them. I think it's either through like krishnastore.com or krishna.com. It was available like EPUBs, but there are other ways as well. Like I think you can, the database is also, um, like you can download it and have it. It's an app or some type of program, right? Um, If, you know, your budgets are tight, you can always go to vedabase.com. IO, I think. Is it vedibase.net? Um, and that, like, you can, it has the entire library of everything that Prabhupada's written, spoken, lectures, you know, things like that. Um, and it's searchable, too, so that's great, because you can search keywords and find out everything that Prabhupada's written or said about it. which is often what I do for preparing for these classes. Find a concept and find everything that Prabhupada's written about it. So the comment is, is that you know, we have this personal God, our personal relationship with God. And it's very hard to have a relationship with light, the Brahman effulgence. But we have many, many people, even from ancient times, that are, that is their goal, right? To merge with the Brahman effulgence, or that's what they worship. And Krishna says, 
all roads lead to him. So whether someone's worshiping demigods or they're worshiping the Brahman effulgence, it's all him. It's just different manifestations and indirect path and direct path. So on one, in one sense, that's fine. Right? In another sense, we know that um, part of who we are, our constitutional nature, is is uh, personal. We we have this need for connections and relationships, and the soul is active, right? So someone that merges into the Brahman effulgence loses all of that. They lose their sense of identity, in a sense, and but they're still active. Um, the soul is still active, so then they end up um, becoming a little restless and coming back. I've also heard it said that sometimes it's easier to think of God as impersonal so that we can continue to enjoy in the material world. Because when we know that um, enjoying in the material world keeps us entangled in the material world, it's, you know, we want to, in some ways, we want to stay entangled because we have our attachments and our desires. And I've heard, uh, I think it's Mahatma Prabhu that said this example, example that really made sense to me, that if you're, you know, let's say you are, um, you know, engaging in something. Like you want to go out to a party. And if your dad is standing right there, well, then you have someone that's there to tell you no and, you know, to see you and be disappointed in you and, you know, to kind of express that kind of uh, discipline on so, you know, that personal father is there. But if, like, you know, dad's away and um, he's not in the house, then it's easier for me to escape or, you know, sneak out of the house and go into a party because there's no apparent supervision. And the impersonal effulgence is like that because then I don't have to think of the consequences of my actions or I don't have to, you know, feel disappointment or that, you know, that I'm hurting a a personal God, right? So it's a little bit like that. Like, it's easier to continue to enjoy if we're not thinking of God as a personal God that we have a relationship with. And it's interesting because I see this concept all the time in movies, um, even um, TV shows. There's a TV show, and I don't want to name the name because in case... Someone's watching. I don't want to make any spoilers, but at the end, you know, they they're talking about heaven, and they're showing that they've enjoyed as much as they can. This concept of heaven is like eternal pleasure. Like you're just, it's all about your own pleasure. And um, then what happens is that they end up deciding to leave heaven but coming back as service. Um, Anytime somebody does a good deed, that was them influencing somebody here on earth to perform some sort of service like that. And I thought, here's what the issue is with the impersonal realization of God, right? There's the, once we merge into the Brahman effulgence, we, we can have a certain amount of pleasure for a certain amount of time, but then it's like, what's next? Like, how are we really uh, progressing here? 
So when we have a relationship with Krishna and we're interacting with him, the pleasure just keeps increasing and it's and it's varying, you know. It's not the same pleasure over and over again that we get bored of. Uh, so it's very different when we have a personal relationship. So the examples given um, in the comment was the four Kumaras, um, they were very much engaged with the Brahman effulgence until they smelled the fragrance of the tulsi that was on Krishna's feet. And Sukadev Goswami, same thing. He had learned all this Vedic knowledge, but it wasn't until he heard Krishna praised as a personal God that it opened up his heart to the love and devotion. And that's a great um, thing to conclude on because that's the whole um, purport of what we're reading, right? Like, in order to develop our love and personal relationship with Krishna, we have to read, we have to hear these glories so that it opens up our hearts and we can realize our love and our relationship to Krishna. Darantara Srimad Bhagavatam ki jai.